Hello, please let me see your ticket stubs for the Double Edge Double Bill. This week, we're rated NC-17 for Killer Joes and Showgirls. Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then, both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. I am Adam Thomas, and yes, Joe, I would like some chicken. And I'm Thomas Mariani, and this episode is Raid NC-17, but not so much for, like, sexuality or violence or language, but just to keep the children away from this... Just idiocy, quite frankly. Yeah, and I'm going to say fuck a whole fucking bunch. Man, that's fucking rude of you. <laughs> fuck it, fuck, 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 fuck. The, the MPA is not going to look kindly on this. Nope. Fuck him! <laughs> ah, yeah! <laughs> oh, the belly's tearing off. Oh, what a rebel, a renegade over here, Adam Thomas. Hey, <laughs> fuck yeah! Yes, uh, but welcome everybody to the Devil Edge Devil Bill, where every week uh, Adam and I discuss a double feature that we pick at the end of the previous episode that's related to a certain topic that might be, you know, a bit uh, in the zeitgeist, as it were. And uh, we decided to do uh, this along with uh, some help from our patrons, patreon.com slash gedbpod, who uh, you guys get to vote in polls if you become a patron for $1, uh, to pick certain you know, movies or topics we cover. And we wanted to do something related to coming out this week is the Netflix Marilyn Monroe movie uh, from Andrew Dominic starring Anna de Armas Blonde will be coming out, which uh, the reviews of the Toronto International Film Festival uh, say a lot of fascinating things about how that movie is. In a good way or a bad way? Uh, very strongly either way. <laughs> very, uh. very passionately either way. But we figured it was an interesting excuse to talk about sort of uh, the uh, a rating-related thing, because that movie's rated NC-17. That's sort of like a lot of the, the hubbub about it, is it's the first big NC-17 movie in quite a bit. And so uh, we put out a poll for our patrons. They end up choosing NC-17-rated movies, which this is in relation to the Motion Picture Association, um, which formerly Motion Picture Association of America, or the MPAA, now MPA, uh, which is basically, if you're underwear, maybe if you're an international listener, ever since 1968, uh, the Motion Picture Association is basically is a board of mysterious figures who watch movies and assign them a rating. Uh, like in over here, it's usually either G, PG, PG-13, R, or NC-17, formerly X. That rating uh, used to exist until about 1990. Uh, but basically, it, NC-17 in particular is um, the rating where you can't even have an adult come with you. If you're under 17, you cannot see the movie. And it's sort of like a scarlet letter of a rating. Because a lot of people, when that rating gets assigned to a movie, uh, less theaters are willing to show it less advertisers are willing to put it out. And even back when, during higher physical media days, uh, certain chains wouldn't even allow you to rent or buy it. You know, even as kids, those were the ones you wanted to see, though. You know, you wanted to see the unrated or the NC-17 or the X, or well, especially the X. Hey, because people be fucking. Uh, no, I... <laughs> but yeah, I was always drawn to them just because, like, what the hell is this? What makes this movie so just 
unbelievable that they they had to slap it with this rating to basically kill it real forbidden fruit kind of shit we're just like no you can't have it well right and you know i mean and the thing is it's it's basically a death sentence yeah uh, on the film itself i mean the thing about blonde obviously it's going on netflix so it's going to have legs there but if it went to the theater it would die a quick death there's no question right because it wouldn't go to as many theaters and everything and just in general with the mpa it's just sort of a fascinating thing where that's something i glommed onto even before i was like a huge movie person necessarily just as a kid you're always aware of like okay g pg but then when it starts getting to pg-13 you're like oh maybe it's a bit more raunchy i'm not 13 yet but it's like, oh, that's, gonna, that's a bit more salacious than there, there's that kind of fascination with like oh managing to see more adult material when you're younger um then again also i had my dad who if it was a violent movie that was r-rated didn't give a single fuck sure yeah you can watch it uh, but oh there's a sex scene you better shield your fucking eyes kid you can't be exposed to this filth 100 percent the same way my dad let us watch whatever the hell we wanted for the most part but anytime there was nudity or a sex scene cover your eyes god damn it you're like what I just saw that guy blow apart. Like, that's way more upsetting than a pair of boobies. Like, what is the problem here? Yeah, it, it was really, it's such a weird, bizarre angle to take. You know, it, it honestly, like, the nudity should be just more open and talked about. Whereas I understand the violence, you know, shielding kids from that. But no, for some reason, and this messed up society. We live in a society. Oh, tell me more. I haven't heard about this before. A society. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, ooh, what kind of a society, you say? <laughs> Keep going, Joker. Please, Arthur Fleck, continue. No, I fucking said that joke, and I literally like, hated myself for saying it, so I'm done talking for the rest of that episode. <laughs> oh boy, I'm, I'm on my own here. Well, um, it's interesting with even, like, not just on, in terms of, like, parental stuff, but even with, like, the MPA themselves, that's been sort of the struggle, is that a lot of, like, in the A's, it was a bit more, like, violence-focused. They would, like, be more punishing. Like, RoboCop was a movie where, like, it was rated at that time X initially by the MPA, wow. and then they had to, like, cut out several bits before it could just be the R rating. But then as, like, the 90s in particular continued, a lot of movies were, you know, given that NC-17 thing because of any hint of sexuality, even, especially, like, not even just traditional heterosexual sexuality especially if it's like you know homosexuality was often targeted and even like kinks quote-unquote that they considered off kilter not mainstream uh they punished those movies a lot it's very interesting if you've ever seen the um the documentary the this is not yet rated from about like 15 or so yeah. years ago yeah, yeah. Um, it goes into a lot of that, and in particular, uh, spoilers at the end of that movie, they have like a private investigator who's searching throughout the whole movie for who these mysterious people are, who they don't give out their names for the motion picture board, and then you find out by the end of it, like, oh, according to their findings, it's like the people who run massive cinema chains and certain CEOs on like Fox and Warner Brothers and shit like that who are part of that fucking big shocker. Oh my god, yeah, so it's just like, oh great, uh, this entire system is uh, built on just corporate bullshit. Yeah, I mean, I mean, a hundred percent, right? It's just, it's all about them just controlling what we can see and what we can watch, and it's just, yeah, it's all garbage, dude. It, 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 plus, just the idea of the NPA alone, it just fucking drives me nuts. Like you get this, like you said, a room full of stuffed shirt assholes who either a typically just don't get what they're watching or B, have a vested interest in the film they're rating and they get to decide who can watch what and how they can see it and how it's built and how it's, it's just, it's fucking outrageous. Right. Like I remember when I was a kid, the sort of the first exposure to like that kind of hypocrisy was listening to a lot of like the Kevin Smith commentaries and interviews where he's had many scuffles with the MPA down to, they rated Clerks initially NC-17 for just like the dialogue, which is fucking insane. 
That's insane. Yeah. And he had to appeal that. They like fucking Miramax hired Alan Dershowitz to argue against that. Christ. And this is like shortly after the OJ trial. This is fucking nuts. It's nuts. For for language? Like, are you kidding me? And that's the thing, too. Like, just don't take your kids to see it. Like, it's that simple. Like, just, hey, probably shouldn't go see Clerks if you're fucking 11 years old. Like, it's not that hard, dude. It's really not that hard. I blame the parents. Right. I was curious also to, despite, like, what we're, I, I think we're mutual agreement that this entire system is kind of fucked up. As a parent, I'm sure you do at least appreciate some kind of, like, warning of content. Like, I don't think you're, are you necessarily against the idea of a ratings sort of system in general? Or it's just more the way the MPA does it? I, it's more the MPA does it. I, I don't have a problem with the rating system because, yeah, of course, it's going to sort of inform my decision making on what I'm going to allow my kid to watch or not. But also, you know, I consider myself a reasonably intuitive person. Like, there's going to be certain movies you can tell just by how it's sold or what is on the cover or with even the title. Like, yeah, I just can't watch this. Or even just basic fucking research, like going on Wikipedia or whatever, just to find out what this movie is. <laughs> Takes five seconds. Uh, yeah, no, I'm not against the ratings board per se, but I, it's very flawed. It's, it's a, it's a weird system, um, that had a stronghold and it, to be fair, it's, it's sadly, it's better than like previously before 1968, you had like the Hayes code, which was a very like thumbs up, thumbs down as to like whether or not a movie could even be possibly screened like between 1930 and 1967, or just like, oh, is this a gangster picture? They have to die by the end. And we have to say this is morally wrong and bad. Yep. I mean, there's still, and the thing is, their formula is still followed a lot in mainstream cinema. I mean, don't you think? Where it's still just like simple, like the bad guy's got to do his comeuppance and blah, blah, blah. It's just, it, it's not necessarily something that we've gone away from extremely, but as far as it being regulated, yeah, I guess. Yeah, and I mean, it, even though, like, if we get these movies that come out, they at least, they might come out, but once again, they'll be slapped with an NC-17, where it's like, you'll be released, just we'll make sure you are heavily, heavily hampered by our bullshit. <laughs> At the same time, which is sadly slightly better than your movie won't ever come out if this gangster doesn't like die by the end of the movie. <laughs> right. Um, but we're not talking about all of that. We're here to talk about two NC-17 movies we picked at the end of our last episode. Uh, you had the good picks, Adam, and we got Killer Joe out of that. And when yeah. I had the bad picks and we got Showgirls out of that, baby. Yeah. Yes, yes. But uh, let's start off with our good pick, Killer Joe. I need six thousand dollars or some guys are gonna kill me. Better get out of town quick. You ever hear of Joe Cooper? What you do? He kills people. Mom's got a fifty thousand dollar life insurance policy. Killer Joe's a professional. He'll do this right. My payment is twenty-five thousand dollars in cash. No exceptions. We have a problem with the advance. No exceptions. Conversation is finished. Of course, we never discussed the possibility of a retainer. What do you mean? Hey, man, you talking about my sister? Is that who she is? They're not gonna pay you the money, are they? Yo, listen, we gotta stop this. A toast to my future wife. I'm not leaving until I get my money. You know I'll kill you. It smells heavenly. Who would like to say grace?
So Killer Joe uh, came out July 27, 2012 from director William Friedkin, written by Tracy Letts based on his play of the same name. And somehow in uh, the long history of our show, Adam, we never talked about Mr. William Friedkin, one of the great sort of uh, fascinating uh, rebellious directors of his era. Yeah, it's wild. Uh, you know, everybody, of course, would know him from probably The Exorcist, I would say. Right, his most high-profile thing, for sure. Uh, I'd say so, for sure. But, I mean, dude, the guy's done some great fucking things, like Sorcerer. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, obviously the movie we're about to talk about, I'm really a big fan of. I like a lot of freaking stuff. Like, even Bug, I enjoyed. Um, yeah, it's it's kind of wild. It took us this long to get to it. Yes, and uh, this is his most recent narrative feature film. I know, I believe he did, like, some documentary in the last, like, five years or so. But this is... Yeah, like, the real The Devil and Father, whatever the hell it is. It's, it's a documentary, I believe, about actual exorcists right yeah it's like the devil and father amroth or something like that something like that right right but this is the most recent sort of narrative feature why don't you tell people out it maybe a bit because uh, this nc-17 movie didn't have a massive release at the time it came out obviously so some of you might not be aware why don't you give people a basic synopsis of this movie and then detail into your uh, sort of opening thoughts why you picked it as a good pick all right, all right. so basically matthew mcconaughey uh plays the titular joe uh he's a sort of police officer during the day a detective and he also moonlights as a hitman. And he's hired by this young man, uh, played by Emil Hirsch, and his father, Thomas Hayden Church, to kill the ex-wife of Thomas Hayden Church and Emil Hirsch's mother to collect on a life insurance policy. And uh, basically, shenanigans ensue from there. You know, I saw this movie when it first came out, parts of it. I never was able to finish it just because of the NC-17. It's kind of hard to find, and I never wanted to watch, I think... If I remember right, there is a rated version out there. I'm not 100% on that, but I believe I mean, yeah, basically, like with that, um, it was released in theaters as NC-17, and then when it went to home video, they surrendered the rating, which basically means it got removed. So it was released both as like an unrated director's cut and an R-rated version on home video. Ah, yeah, because I never wanted to watch just the home video version. I wanted to see it if I was going to watch it, the NC-17. So I only caught parts of it. You know, now that I've actually been able to sit and watch the whole thing, uh... It's a fucking wild movie, man. Like, it, it is a dark, dark, bleak movie with bits of, like, dark comedy thrown in. Like, you don't walk away from Killer Joe feeling good. Like, at least... I mean, I, I don't know didn't. what you're talking about. Like, after I finished, I went down, like, skipped down the sidewalk. Birds were tweeting all around. It was a real fun went, time. Went and got some KFC. I prefer a Church's or yeah, uh, a Popeye's true. myself, but... Great acting. It, it looks great. For the most part, it's great acting. Uh, you know, it's got... Emil Hirsch in it, which... Uh, yeah, I mean, we should yeah. probably firmly state up front. Uh, Fuck that guy. Yeah, has a, has a history of uh, doing some shitty things. Um, though I think appropriate for this movie in that he plays a fucking idiot. Moron, fuck up. <laughs> Such a fucking idiot. Like, what's so does Thomas Hayden Church? I mean, he's a moron, too. They're what you'd think of when you think of stereotypical trailer park trash. You know, that, and that's what they are in this. They live in trailer park and blah, 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 blah. Not to say that everybody who lives in a trailer park is trash. I don't mean to imply that. No. But I'm saying as far as in popular culture, when that's represented, these these people kind of fit that bill. Like, it goes to places where just, what are we what are we doing now? Like, what, what is happening? It's got some of the, it's got a very, very bizarre sex scene. And also what happens with the chicken. And then it just, ultimately how it wraps up. I mean, this movie is fucking crazy. It is a crazy, crazy movie. 
would you say has sort of earned its NC-17 for, to quote the rating board, why they rated this, uh, graphic disturbing content involving violence and sexuality and a scene of brutality? Yeah, that's all the last like bit of the movie. And right. uh, yeah, I'd say it's pretty fucked up, dude. I don't know that it deserves maybe an NC-17. I've seen worse shit in R-rated movies, like horror movies and stuff. But I can't imagine going into this movie and not knowing that that's coming and then seeing it and being in the theater. It would would be one of the most uncomfortable experiences ever. Yeah, I mean, I could see not necessarily bringing someone 17 or under to this movie. I get that. Yeah, I get that. Yeah, I get that. Yes. Uh, But yeah, I mean, I also saw this around the time it came out. Um, and it was sort of part of a big thing with uh, our star is Matthew McConaughey, and this was the early point of the McConaissance, as it were, um, in which he was kind of getting out of his uh, rut of doing, you know, a movie we covered previously, Sahara, or his rom-coms that were just kind of like, oh man, you're just fucking sliding by on whatever charm you have there. Uh, But this is one of the early examples of him really kind of coming into his own as like, I'm going to bring back my actual gravitas I had in my early point as an actor. Uh, But in this case, doing it with a skeevient like sort of character that's like unsettling and weird, which I think is where he works his best is where there's a guy who's like charming to a certain degree, but also incredibly vile (laughs) And shitty when you really dig deep into the surface of him. Oh yeah, he's an awful, awful piece of shit in this movie. But I agree. I think that's sort of McConaughey's best work. Like you got this. You got I. I'd argue True Detective season one. He plays a mm-hmm. very sort of weird, skeevy guy. Uh, obviously, we mentioned Texas Chainsaw because that's just an unhinged performance. Very much a precursor to this movie in a lot of ways. <laughs> in, a, in, a, in quite a few ways. Yeah, I, I agree. But yeah, I, I say this is sort of my favorite type of McConaughey performance because he works really well. Like Frailty. It reminds me of that even, the way he's sitting there having the discussion with Powers Booth and all that. Or, or even his one scene in uh, Wolf of Wall Street has that. He's on a whole other level. He's on a different planet in that movie. Right, but has a similar vibe of just like, this guy's kind of charming, but also he's such a fucking piece of shit. What a skeevy, weird fuck. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> you know, the thing is, like, he, he looks to shit in this. He's, uh, his drawl works perfectly. You know, that's one thing about Matthew Conaghy. The dude's always got the same drawl. But in this type of performance, it's when it, it comes off almost menacing. It's charming, but at the same time, it's terrifying. Just his voice, even. Just the way he dresses, he's always got the gloves on. He's always dressed sharp in this movie, dressed to the nines. He's got the hat and everything. Which, yeah, what I really realized with this movie also is that like Matthew Conaghy weirdly works so well with like the cowboy hat and everything, but also he has such a personality that like would never work if he was in an actual like period western. Uh, yeah, I think that's true. Yeah, he can only work in like a neo western where he's just like this is a guy who clearly was at least in the twentieth or twenty first century at some point, but never like actual eighteen hundreds. Yeah, the farthest back he could go probably is like nineteen forties Texas. <laughs> like right. that. Yeah, I I never thought of it that way, but yeah, I, weird being a guy you know with that southern drawl and everything, and it looks rocks the shit a cowboy hat. But yeah, I don't think he would work in a western either. Now, you saw that doing three ten to you, which is like you're not from like eighteen seventy five or whatever the fuck. Right, 100%. He, 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 all right, we're going to need you to lay your guns down. He's like, get the fuck out of here, man. <laughs> no way. But, uh, yeah, he it's a fucking great, terrifying, weird, eerie, makes you feel gross and dirty performance by McConaughey. In this. It, it's pretty stellar. Yeah, though he is very much helped by um, a great sort of small cast. Like, this is, as I mentioned, based on the Tracy Letts play. But mm-hmm. it's one of those great movies where you can tell it was based on a play, but at the same time, Freakin does make that kind of limited quarters, like, people talking in a room thing look cinematic, despite that. There's a lot of great, like, ways that he just frames, like, how these people are talking. Or particularly, 
any of the scenes between McConaughey and my other favorite person in this movie, Gino Temple, uh, which yeah, this great. is the first movie I really like noticed her in. Um, it's that is such a hard role to play where she plays uh, Emile Hirsch's sister, who becomes a retainer because they can't give him the advance for the the, the killing operation on the mom. So it's like fine, I'll keep her as a retainer, which is inherent. Like okay, this is so fucked up. How are they going to play this? And I think they play it in the exact way that works where it is entirely fucked up and the movie never sort of makes it actually, like, appealing. Like, despite the fact that he and Juno Temple have a sexual relationship, um, it is always skeevy, it's always unsettling, and it's always just like, I... Despite the fact that these are two very attractive people, any of the scenes where they're being intimate are fucking upsetting. It's awful. Yeah. It's absolutely awful. I completely agree. And the thing is, too, the, the the part that really makes it even more unsettling to me is the way it's played to where you get the idea, like, he genuinely does kind of, like, maybe have feelings for her and her for him as well. And the whole time you're just like, oh, God, no. <laughs> Especially for her, you're like, oh, God, this, run away. It's just, it's so fucking gross and creepy. And like I said, their very first sex scene is so, oh, Ooh, I don't like it. <laughs> don't like it. Where she makes him the casserole, which is so fucking weird. And then the whole deal with the dress, and it's just, it's so bizarre, man. Yeah, and just that they're, this woman is totally being exploited with Temple. Uh, but at the same time, by the end of the movie, I love the fact that she does get some sort of resilience, but it's through this really, once again, fucked up means of just like, oh, I'm going to like take some kind of. Uh, you know, control over my life finally, but it's through just the means of like, oh, I have to kill like basically my fucking family and this man who I've grown to have affection for, but at the same time just mutilated my brother. It goes to really fucked up dark places. Big shocker. Uh, yeah, but the, th- and the thing is though, even the way it ends though, like it's implied she kills him, but they don't yeah. show it. Right. Like it's never actually confirmed that she killed Killer Joe, but uh, she did, right? She totally did. I mean that that's that's my head canon. That's that's what I'm putting in the Killer Joe wiki that I'm creating. <laughs> the, the massive sprawling universe of Killer Joe. But uh, you mentioned Thomas Hayden Church previously. Uh, there's also the other sort of factors is uh, him as the dad of Ojuna Temple and Emil Hirsch, but also their stepmom, played by the unofficial queen of this episode, Gina Gershon, who uh, the two of them are also incredibly fascinating characters. Where particularly like Church is playing like that idiot role perfectly the, the weird comedic relief of this movie really where he's just like he's big and lumbering and kind of dumb but in like a bizarrely endearing way despite him also being a piece of shit but then gershon does such a phenomenal role of being someone who honestly is like the most relatable character in this movie to me and then it's just like oh god we're i'm so tired of all this bullshit that's going on here but as the movie goes along sort of the reveals about where her alliances are just like really uh pull this movie into a new stratosphere with everything that you mentioned with the chicken element of it um she it's a role that like could be a lot more sort of like overly villainous and cruel but i think she plays it in such a fascinating way that still makes you like very much sympathetic for it as especially uh she is the victim of a horrible fucking assault by the end of this movie yeah no it's it's a very very brutal scene it's one of the most vicious sort of man against woman violent scenes uh i've seen in a film in a long time uh, I mean, just the severe ass kicking she gets is so fucking hard to watch. But this is probably my favorite performance of hers, period, in anything I've seen her in. I mean, she's been around for a long time, but I think she's really, really good in this. Uh, and it's 
damn near scene stealing. Like she's very, very close. Let's put it this way. If she's in a scene with McConaughey, McConaughey's got it. But when it's like her, Hayden Church, and Emile Hirsch, I think she steals the movie every time. I think she's absolutely phenomenal in this movie. Yeah, especially even with the... I'm not sure if it's a double or not for her, but she apparently at least wore a Merkin for her opening bit, where uh, oh, she's yeah. introduced yeah, yeah. from the waist down with a, a massive Merkin uh, covering her vagina. It's uh, like such a like immediately br- brazen thing of just like, yep, this is me being introduced without pants on. Um, but I, I agree that like, I think she works particularly... My favorite scene is between her... And Gino Temple at the pizzeria. Yes, I agree. Uh, when she comes over, yeah, where they talk about uh, Gino Temple's, like, young, like, third-grade-era boyfriend or whatever. And, like, that conversation and Gina Gershon's, like, very endearing reactions to it, where she's like, oh, honey, you're so innocent. This is adorable. But also, the fact that you're going to be this retainer for this man makes me deeply concerned. Like, I, I, I love that particular scene. And also, all this shit was just like, I didn't want any black olives on my pizza. Like, fine, we'll, we'll get a new pizza going, but I'm going to eat this olive pizza on my break. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Or it gives, yeah, her and Juno Temple sit there and eat it. For the record, the most disgusting thing in the movie, to eat that many olives. Oh, God, it's so gross. <laughs> the God, most disgusting part, oh, clearly, of this movie. Oh, it's awful. It's all that part. That's why I don't leave. I'm feeling good after I watch this. I mean, that's the main NC-17. They forgot that part. Just like brutality also was seen of someone eating olive-covered pizza. Brutality on pizza. Um <laughs> Yeah, it's fucking disgusting. But I love that scene, too, for some reason. One is her and Judah Temple, but then Thomas Hayden Church come in, buy some money, get some beer. Like, he's just such an idiot. And he walks in and grabs somebody's, like, half-drink beer off a table and drinks yep. it. And you're yeah. like, oh, uh, that also. Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, whose spit is in that bottle? Um, just so, <laughs> so much backwash. Oh, so gross. But yeah, she's fucking phenomenal, this man. And I'll tell you, it gets so wild at the end of this movie, though. Like, obviously, the beating and then the chicken fellatio scene is very, very hard to watch, obviously. But ultimately, how she acts towards when Emil Hirsch gets involved. And it's just like, you know, kill him, Joe. You're like, oh, my fucking God, this is wild. What is happening here? And it's just, it's so fucking crazy. And oh my God, does Bill Hirsch get it? Oh boy. Yeah. And I mean, it, it is a weird thing where also I could see how, like, if I were to see a theatrical production of this play, that would be like unsettling to me just to see like people doing that live in front of me on a stage. Just like, Jesus fucking Christ. That's so bizarre. Yeah, but, but, but what if it's stage fighting like in West Side Story? <laughs> like this is ridiculous. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like like stunt slapping, just like with the chicken yeah. leg in hand. Matthew got a walks towards him, punched over, snapping. <laughs> like that's how he's going after Bill Hirsch. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. Yeah. Um, but but no, but what I like also is the fact that like with the way that Friedkin translates this to the screen is something that like is very present and I haven't seen like a huge amount of his movies, but the thing I've like noticed consistently at least is that he likes adding a certain sense of like grounded realism to his movies, even like as over the top as The Exorcist gets. The reason like all the fucked up stuff works in that movie is because you got a solid like 40 minutes or so of just built with like, no, this is this, what's like Washington DC, right is where that's uh-huh. set. 
Yeah, right? yeah I believe so. But the DC atmosphere and everybody living their lives, and it's all sort of like, it feels very natural. Even in this movie, with as heightened as it gets, like the, the look of, like, say, that pizzeria, that feels like a real Texas pizzeria where, like, the sun is, like, drenching in from the windows, and, like, the, the production design, everything looks so, like, very lived in and real. There's a faded signed picture of Danny Aiello on the wall. <laughs> like it, it feels like there's this like actual authenticity so then when things get heightened it like is just all the more effective it feels like the closest you could get to approximating like being in a theatrical production in the audience watching this happening because it feels like so grounded even just the locations like the big scene where like they reveal that like all of this was for naught with like going to that one guy and saying like oh yeah a Juno Temple isn't actually the beneficiary for the estate it's this dude and it's like ah oh, fuck me like the, that scene where Emil Hirsch realizes how much of an idiot he is looks like a real authentic just like shitty back alley covered in like dirt and mud and like leftover water from the rainfall that just happened like a couple of days ago Oh, 100%. I love that scene, too, where she pulls the thread on his suit. And it literally rips the entire sleeve off. <laughs> it's so good. How terrible that suit looks. It's so good. Yeah, he's sitting there trying to hold it up. Yeah, but, I mean, well, clearly they get all of their clothes at Goodwill and stuff like that. Like, that's yes. implied. Because they spend all their money on drugs and alcohol. Yeah, it's it's great, dude. The whole thing feels very lived in and real and gross. And, and just, it, it's really really well done and freaking you're right has a real ability to do that to take something that's like you said a stage play where it's you know one to two probably set changes and things like that to turn it into something like this kind of like how he did with bug you know where bug is based out of play and it's a a virtual let's play as well this is tracy yeah yeah. right and it's virtually uh, you know two people in a hotel room the whole movie and it's fucking captivating as hell like, he's really, really able to put the camera where it needs to be to film these things and make it as cinematic as possible. And again, I haven't seen a lot of freaking stuff either, probably way less than I should have. But yeah, he's he's really fucking, you know, hot take, good at his job. I need to give Bug a second chance, because I haven't seen Bug since I saw it theatrically with my father, because we were both like, oh yeah, this is going to be a Bug, like, gross alien movie. Uh, based on the trailers, and nope, it is that's not, not what that fucking yeah. movie is. <laughs> Spoilers. Not one bit. That is a very psychologically fucked up movie. Yep. It is about crazy finding crazy. Yeah, you shouldn't give it a chance. But yeah, no, uh, but back to, you know, the movie at hand. It's such a weird film, too, because it's so charming. Like, like with McConaughey, he's so charming. Juno Temple, you just love her in it. But then it just goes to just dark, awful, terrible places. And then comes back a little bit more with the whimsy. And you're like, oh, okay. And then, oh, God, where's it going now? Like, it just, it's so, so well done. And it's such a really underseen movie. Well, I think what works about the movie actually is it never really removes all of that sort of, like, grimy, disgusting element. Because I think that's always present at the same time. There is maybe peaks of that whimsy. Like, even with uh, Emil Hirsch and Thomas Hayden Church, like, what's genius is, like, those guys are, like, awful pieces of shit. They're they're so dumb. So stupid. Like, them discussing the plan at, like, either their trailer park or then later at the strip club. Like, immediately she's like, okay, there's a bit of, like, almost Coen Brothers-y endearing charm to their idiocy but it yes. never forgets the fact like oh wait they're discussing about the murder of this woman who we never see i also like that element that like we're so isolated that we don't even really see the mother character until her corpse shows up in killer joe's trunk like i like the element that we're so stuck in these characters that like when you see them i'm like they're like oh fuck there's an actual dead woman in the back of this fucking car it really also hits hard it's just like oh my god killer joe who we didn't even know like has he been planning any of this just like oh no he's done it already yeah this it's already done. fucking happened 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. He did it like two days ago. Yeah, you know, it's wild. Yeah, I agree. It's really the version of like Watchmen, just like I did it 35 minutes ago. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's, he's, he's trailer Ozymandias. I am Ozymandias. Oh, you can call me Oz. That's okay. <laughs> um, but I, so I'm also curious, Adam, with like all this stuff, like we've often talked about, like we're not necessarily, you know, like we when we've talked about sort of like violence, particularly like against women in movies like this, we are oftentimes feel like, oh, it's very exploitative or very like shitty. Oh. doesn't really know how to handle that element of it what would you say separates like a killer joe in that front where there's like such violent behavior even particularly portrayed toward like a gina gershon what makes you like sort of res- at least like appreciate it here uh, as opposed to other movies we've maybe talked about in the past i don't know that appreciate would be the word i would use right but understanding why it's in there and feeling that it's an unnecessary inclusion yeah i do uh it, it's you know, the thing is, though, as I guess you kind of said, it doesn't feel like it comes out of really nowhere. I mean, it is a very brutal scene that happens, but the whole movie has had this underlying sense of danger, dread, sleaze, grime, violence, sexual sort of implications. Like, it's been the whole film. So when it happens, it just feels like it's an, almost a natural crescendo, which is crazy and wild. But the thing that I that's really well done about it, it does not shy away from the brutality of it and how fucked up it is what's going on. They don't try to glamorize it. There's no like recompense at the end. Nobody that nobody like apologizes to anybody and nobody, you know, the kids aren't gonna stay together. Like it's just fucked up. Like it's trying to just show like this is a very brutal, awful situation with these awful, brutal people. And it just sort of fits the tone of the whole movie. When I necessarily when I really have a problem with it is when it's done just only for shock value or comes completely out of nowhere. And you're like, what the fuck is this about this? It felt like the, where else could it go? Like you knew this movie was going to end with a fucking thunderclap. And that's what you got. Yeah. I think I would agree with that. And yeah, the, the appreciate was probably the, the poor term to use necessarily. I think I agree that like, it feels at least like it works within the story that uh, Tracy mm-hmm. has unveiled, which I think that's, that's what's so fascinating about that dude based on at least like the, the movies I've seen that are adapted from his works is that he has a real, sort of control over the idea of like who any of his characters are there never feels like there's like weird bizarre turns that don't feel like inaccurate to the story necessarily it always feels like these people from the jump are like very fucked up individuals and it never feels like we're too sympathetic to them to any degree there is always that element of just like these are vile upsetting people but at the same time they are captivating characters that's the thing is like he knows that like to how to make them captivating without making them sympathetic I think that's like the real strength of this movie is even when I think sometimes it can feel tonally bizarre and weird in a way that I don't necessarily uh, jive with. At the same time, these people feel like they live in this particular world that we've set up with the story. And so when things get as vile and upsetting and deeply uncomfortable as it gets, at the same time, I am compelled by like the insane drama that's happening here and the dark comedy that's always present feels like very crucial to the story all the way down to like Juno Temple saying by the end of it, like I'm having a baby and Matthew McConaughey being like, just like lit up like that's wonderful. I'm so happy after brutalizing Emil Hirsch's fucking dead on the ground. And Gina Gershon and Thomas Hayden church are like cowering in the corner. Well, Thomas Hayden church at that point has a bolt in his stomach. Right. Uh, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, right. He's dying there, bleeding out, and it's just like, oh, look, the family's going to keep going. Isn't this great? As everything's falling apart, that kind of like dark comedy contrast works beautifully to be the exclamation point at the end of this movie. Yeah, I agree. Um, but you know what we have 
a whole other movie to talk about extensively. So let's do some some brief final thoughts, Adam, on Killer Joe. Uh, like I said, it's a fucking wild ride, man. It's one of those dark, deeply disturbing films, but it never feels gratuitous, which is wild because most of the movies done by somebody else with this sort of you know, plot contrivances and things like that, it would it could very easily become just a sort of gratuitous in nature movie, a shock value movie. And this really isn't that. There are shocking moments. There is some parts where the violence does feel like it might be going overboard, but it's never pushed to the, like I said, gratuity limit. Like, I, I think this movie works on almost every level. It's not a perfect movie by any means because of how disturbing it is. I, I, I like, I, this is not one I would necessarily go back and watch again anytime soon. But I do think as far as like NC-17 movies go or unrated, however you want to call it, or Matthew McConaughey doing a really dark role and just a really sort of disturbing look at sort of American white culture, especially in sort of the poor South. It's a good watch, uh, but yeah, it's it's fucked up. But I think it fits the exactly what we, you know, the point of this, this episode is. I, I think it works perfectly for that. Yeah, it's definitely a movie where I get why it was rated NC-17. This isn't one of those where I'm like, I don't know, guys. This is this doesn't feel like it could be an NC-17 to any degree. I don't feel that, necessarily. But at the same time, it's a shame that like a movie like this, while would never be a mainstream hit, necessarily, uh, is at the same time christened with that scarlet letter and has depleted enough people from seeing it in terms of, like, there are people who I'm sh- like us, like sickos, as the kids say, um, who can like find something engaging about this movie. Um, but at the same time, it's also definitely a movie where I agree with you. I'm this, It's been 10 years since I watched it last time. Uh, probably going to be another 10 years before I watch it again because it's just like it drains a lot out of you. Even though it's like an hour, 40 minutes long, you feel every single minute of that on like a brutal level and on like an unsettling skeevy level. But at the same time, it's so fascinating to watch because of all these performers, because of Friedkin's abilities, because of Tracy Letts' screenplay. It feels like such a an interesting kind of dive into this fucked up unsettling world that, um, you know, I get would not be for everybody. Definitely. This is a movie where, uh, qualified recommendations around. <laughs> if you aren't necessarily triggered by any of the things we might've mentioned during this, um, I would definitely recommend seeking it out. Uh, but you know, which is the qualification. Like it's really fucked up. Yeah. You're yeah. not going to have a good time afterwards. No, you're not going to feel once again, jovial and like the sun's not going to smile at you. Like, isn't it a lovely day necessarily? No. Bluebirds aren't going to come tweeting out in your window and stuff. No, or... no, this is not going to be a Snow White scenario. <laughs> yeah, squirrels aren't going to help you put on your dress. Like, right? No. Yeah. Uh, but Adam, we got to talk about a movie that, despite being live action, feels kind of cartoonish on every single level. We got to talk about Paul Verhoeven's Showgirls. Oh boy. Would you say yes? You're going to be a big star. Could you say no? You like her? I'll buy her for you. Ask yourself. You're a stripper, don't you get it? I'm a dancer. What price would you pay for your dream? If someone gets in your way, step on them. It's not about fair. It's about power. This Friday, see the movie everyone is talking about. Showtime. Showgirls. Rated NC-17. No children under 17 admitted. Starts Friday. So, Showgirls uh, came out September 22nd, 1995, um, and as we mentioned, directed by Paul Verhoeven, who we've talked about before, Total Recall, Robocop, one of our faves, uh, the, the crazy Dutchman making his insane movies, um, and also written by Joe Esterhaus, who had previously collaborated with him on Basic Instinct, which was a massive success, so this is their kind of like follow-up, where it's like, uh, they were planning on trying to like make sort of their version of, I believe, like an MGM musical, 
That's what they kind of wanted to do with this movie. And literally, <sighs> Joe Esterhaus fucking wrote this concept on a napkin and got paid $2 million for it and then proceeded to gain another, I believe, $2 million off the actual screenplay, which made him the highest fucking paid screenwriter of all time at that point to make Showgirls... For fucking Showgirls! For Showgirls. That's how big Basic Instinct was, really. <laughs> it's just, that's how yeah, big oh, yeah, yeah, fucking yeah. movie was. That was a huge, huge film. Right, yes. Uh, but uh, they ended up with this, which was rated in C-17 for nudity and erotic sexuality throughout, some graphic language and sexual violence, um, and was the first and to date only NC-17 film to be given a wide release. This was the thing that, like, MGM was, like, fully behind, like, okay, we're gonna sell this, and, like, oh, this is the, the NC-17 massive success movie that, like, everyone's gonna flock to. Uh, not necessarily. Cost $45 million to make, made $37.5 million at the theaters, though ended up making a massive profit on home video by uh, with video rentals alone, making a hundred million dollars. Perverts. Yeah. <laughs> Just a bunch up. of pervs. Right. It was a movie that was critically ambassador at the time. Everybody hated it. Big sort of affecting, especially like Elizabeth Berkeley, our star as Nomi. Uh, but as time has gone along, it's grown a big cult following. A lot of people sort of champion this as a kind of camp classic. And um, I'm curious, Adam, where do you fall on that? Is it a camp classic? How do you feel about Showgirls? You know, it's fucking stupid. Like, it's terrible, right? <laughs> it, it, like, it is a terrible, terrible film. There's there's no question. I, I've never thought this movie was good. Even as a kid, you know, and you watch it for different reasons. Even then, I realized how stupid and bad it is. Uh, Elizabeth Berkley is just the worst in it. <laughs> like, she's, it's really bad. But there's just such an underlying sense of charm to this fucking stupid movie that I'll watch it anytime I come across it. And it just because I, it's sort of like, I, I'm like, who they, this, this got that much like money put behind it and this much time and this much, and the wide release and the press that this movie had was huge. Like this movie, I don't get it. I don't I, Like I, I, I don't understand, I guess, the cult classic, camp classic uh, thing behind it. But I guess in a way I just said I, I agree with it, though, because I'll watch it anytime it's on because how fucking perplexing the whole thing is. Yeah, I think with Showgirls, it's interesting. I initially saw this um, on my college campus. Uh, they We had a movie theater, and this was one of the midnight movies, which, perfect. Kind of all oh, to see that. Yeah, I get that. that. Yeah, amazing. All you to see that with. But what I find so fascinating, I think I feel a similar way to Basic Instinct, which is much more like sort of highly praised a movie. But I feel similarly in terms of, I think Joe Esterhaus is kind of a terrible screenwriter, but Paul Verhoeven taking his very like dumb, poorly written out material and turning it basically into this kind of like skeevy, insane portrait of like a, a sort of gen x era um a star is born story with this movie like i find it so compelling because you can tell i think he's trying to just kind of take a lot of the thematics that are interesting in this movie and trying to really exemplify them through just playing every single bad line to the tens and i think it's even the case with like elizabeth berkeley who most people would have known around this time for being saved by the bell she was part jesse of jesse spano cast. man she's jesse spano right she's so excited <laughs> 
she's I'm so, so scared. She's so scared. Right. Yes, of course. Um, but, um, the fact that, like, this is, like, sort of her turn at, like, look, I'm gonna try and be, like, an adult film star, like, literally with, like, this very adult sexual sort of thriller from, like, two big names in Hollywood at the time, um, this kind of, like, destroying her career. Like, she is, has said many times that, like, Verhoeven directed her to go as big as possible with Nomi, who, basic plot sounds as if you're somehow unaware of Showgirls. Uh, Nomi Malone is, uh, you know, uh, trying to get to Vegas, trying to become... Uh, something more famous than what she is, and uh, she is constantly berated by the awful men that pop up in her life. Um, and she initially becomes a stripper, but then works her way to being a showgirl, and then being the main showgirl through uh, various means. And Nomi Malone is maybe the most aggressive protagonist I've ever seen in a movie, in terms of every single time she is asked a question, or is sort of like even just asked to do give something. Give an advice. Give, give an advice. advice. Anything. Like, any kind of interaction she has with somebody else, her response is always the most response. I'm just gonna throw shit. I'm gonna spill my fries and my pop that you just bought for me. I'm gonna fucking flip out. Then I'm gonna just angrily screw. Like, she is just at 11 all the time. Right. Even, that, like, in that scene you're talking about where, like, she ends up with uh, her friend who she meets in Vegas after being screwed over, Molly, uh, played by Gina Rivera, who is her best friend throughout the movie, even though no one treats her like such shit. This like shit, dude. <laughs> this person was trying to, like, hey, I'm going to help you get a job. I'm going to help you, like, with some things. I'm going to get you, once again, like, the, the fries and soda. Yeah, like, dude. Oh, that... this guy just stole your bag. Here, come with me. I'm gonna get you some food. I can get you some work. You can stay with me. And it's almost like nobody just goes, "Yeah, yeah, you can stay with me." Yeah, fuck you. <laughs> like it's literally like it feels like she's mocking her. Like it's just such a fucking aggressive, awful one-sided friendship. I mean, and particularly with my favorite uh, fucking Elizabeth Berkeley delivery is when she just Molly asks her the most simple question, just like, "So where are you from?" And she immediately responds with, different places! And she fucking throws her arms in front of her. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a literally like, different places, okay? <laughs> like, like, whoa, take it easy. Despite, once again, being so aggro and so vile to her friends at the same time, I, it, I agree it's not necessarily a good performance, but it's a deeply fascinating, watchable performance I could watch for so long. Well, the thing is, I get what they're trying to do, because she's, you know, lying about who she is and basically right. Right on the run and stuff. But anybody around this person would be like, okay, she's hiding something, because you can't even ask her a simple question without her flipping out at you. Very normal, very chill. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, totally cool. Hey, Adam, what'd you have for breakfast? Food, all right? Jesus, get off my back! <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's ridiculous. But, like, and the thing is, I would say that, like, she was one of many people considered for this part, where, like, the list is so bizarre. It's, like, Drew Barrymore, Angelina Jolie, uh, yeah. Charlize Theron. Like, various people who are very talented. I don't think anybody under, like, with this script and also Paul Verhoeven just saying, do as much as you can! Do it! Be as big as possible. No one would have made this work necessarily as like a subtle, complex character. Could you imagine Charlize Theron doing this? Like, honestly. Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> we know it. Like, fucking, what, this is the same year as uh, that thing you do? Like, that era Charlize? Oh, I keep forgetting that's her and that thing you do. Yep. Oh, boy. Yeah, that Charlize Theron and Showgirls. Yeah, 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 sure. They were all offered it, too. Every single one of them passed until they got to Elizabeth Berkeley. I get why she would take it. I mean, the movie was... It was, had a huge press behind it. Like, the movie was... 
like before it came out, the, the buildup to it was absolutely enormous. She probably thought, oh my God, I'm going to be a fucking movie star. And I mean, it's also, it's in the tradition of many like sort of people who initially start in like kids shows trying to like, I want to prove I'm an adult. So I'm going to do this like big glitzy adult movie. I'm an adult. <laughs> not a part of your system. It's true. Andy <laughs> yeah. Samberg, my favorite. Yeah. <laughs> it was Andy Samberg and Showgirls. Now that would be That's not my dad. That's a cell phone. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, that's absolutely what happened. I mean, look, it happens all the time, right? Yeah. Look, and, and often it's not successful. I'd, I'd say probably one of the biggest successes ever would probably be like a Miley Cyrus, who went from Disney to coming out just being this really openly, like, comfortable with her body, sexual sort of figure. You know, for every time it works, there's 10 times it doesn't. Well, and even with, like, Miley Cyrus, that was sort of a weird thing where she initially started off with, like, oh, I'm going to do that by just being, like, a Lady Gaga clone, basically, and that didn't work for her initially. But no. then it's, like, I forgot what it was, like, the VMAs where she just did the full, like, uh, we can't stop, we won't stop, fuck yeah, look at me. That's where it started working for her, which is a few years into that. Yeah, no, I agree, but still, it, it, but it still ended up being hugely, hugely successful. Like, right. she became a massive star. As opposed uh, to Berkeley, who very much disappeared after this movie. And I, she, I mean, she, yeah, I get it. And especially also, if you read any of the reviews around this time, vicious toward the movie, but also just very vicious toward her. Really mean. Really, really mean. Like, don't get me wrong. Again, I don't think she's good in it. I do think she's on a fucking another level. Like, it's overacting to a huge extreme. But I don't think she's good. But goddamn, the whole movie around her is terrible, too. It's a prod. The movie sucks from... From beginning, like the script is terrible. The everything's nothing works. The the horrible music, <laughs> like it's not a good movie. It is not squarely to blame on her. If anything, she's the one giving it a, it all, like a hundred percent. Right, because I mean, there's also various other very talented people in this movie, like Kyle MacLachlan, who I usually love, like Skeevy to like the most insane degree. And all the scenes where Elizabeth Berkeley has to, like, flop like a fish on him. Like, that's the thing. I knew this movie for so long. It's like, oh, it's the sexy, like, movie that, like, you can't see unless you're an adult. And then by the time I was a young adult and I saw this movie, I'm just like, oh, this is the least sexy movie possible. Despite how not many sexy at all. Yeah, no, no not at like, all. Like, the way she flops like a fish on him for that lap dance is like, that is not sexy at all. The way she's flopping on him in the pool when they're banging. She took her stripper advice from the fucking pirate at the beginning of Spongebob. Just like, get on the deck and flop like a fish. Yeah, I would literally be concerned. and be like, oh my god, she's having a seizure. Like, it's, it's wild. And you do get a nice, I don't think it's actually his, but if it is, Kyle MacLachlan's got a booty, son. <laughs> He's got a nice toned ass. I don't think it's actually him. He's also got a terrible haircut. Amazingly terrible haircut. Yeah, it's so bad. It's so bad. And to get to our also our unofficial uh, show topic, uh, Gina Grishon. I think Gina Grishon's having a good time in this movie, too. Gina Grishon is doing the exact thing that I think fits for this movie perfectly. I think she's the only one that kind of gets like, this is dumb, but I'm going to like really embrace it in the most like bizarre way possible. Like, chemistry between her and Berkeley is so fascinating where it is so much of like the sexual tension that at the same time is also completely broken up by like this terrible dialogue. Like the whole doggy chow conversation is one of the most insane conversations I've seen that they try and play sexually. I'm just like, I doggy chow lot. I used to eat doggy chow too. Like, is this endearing that you both ate dog food? Yeah, it's really weird. And then it's like they go through this whole thing to where, you know, she basically pushes Gina Grishon down the stairs. And then at the end, they just have this huge, like, just make out sesh before she leaves. While in the hospital bed. While she's, she's in the like hospital, recovering from the broken bones that caused by her. 
Right, but and she's just like, uh, how do you think I got in my position anyway, darling? That's what I did too. <laughs> I I know. And also, rape in movies is always unsettling. Yeah. This is an there is an un, unnerving rape scene in this movie, but it's so ridiculously over the top. Like it's not funny. It's it's not supposed no, no, to be no. funny, but it's just so overboard. Where you're like, what? Like, what is going on here? This is wild. You're telling me this massive star and, and, uh, and then his two buddies and you're like, this is fucking wild. Like, this is wild. And then ultimately she goes back and like ninja kicks the shit out of him. Fucking crazy. Yeah, I mean, that's where it's sort of like, obviously we, we've talked about for Hoven many times, it's sort of like his kind of like maximalist over the top stuff, like in RoboCop and Total Recall, the violent element of it. Um, I think he's applying that same kind of logic to that that rape scene um, in a way that um, I don't think he's trying to necessarily downplay if anything, he's trying to really confront you with the idea. Like this is what, this whole movie has this whole recurring thing that at least is like, the one element I think genuinely kind of works is just that thing of, um, oh yeah, uh, every single man in the entertainment industry is out to just exploit women. In recent years, that's kind of proven to be like, well, that's not too what? inaccurate. Are you telling me the movie business and show business exploit women? Oh, oh boy. So, uh, 1922. <laughs> I don't think I can watch. I <laughs> See, now I don't know if I could do a movie podcast anymore. This is all news to me. I got some research to do. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, no, but, Hollywood's, but, Hollywood's awful. Hollywood, it's, it's fucking garbage. Or in this case, Vegas, also awful. Oh, I'm sure, though. But I'm sure, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, weirdly, like, the most supportive people are either, like, Glenn Plummer, who plays a total asshole, who says some of the most bizarre dialogue in this movie. One of my favorites of uh, Everybody Got AIDS and Shit. Among several things. Um, but is also like incredibly exploitive in terms of just like, oh yeah, Nomi, I'm totally for you. We're going to choreograph this routine. Excuse me, I have to finish uh, my sexual interplay with Penny, who, the, the newer stripper that you're working with. Um, there's that. Or even Robert Davi, who is one of the skeeviest fucking personas in, in terms of character actors, coming up as just this like awful, shitty uh, strip club owner dude who is just constantly like, telling women like, hey, look, they can't touch you, uh, but unless they have a good tip... Maybe they can. Who knows? Point is, you gotta go work on your mind thing. And they treat him like the supportive sort of father figure by his last scene with another amazing line, just like looking at Elizabeth Berkeley, just like, you've become a showgirl. I'm so proud of you. Must be weird not having anybody come on you. That's our supportive dude in this yep. fucking movie. Is that guy? Yep. That's daddy. Robert Davi was born to play these type of roles. I mean, 100%. He just works perfect in it. And again, there's a, there's actually a really solid cast of a lot of these supporting characters around the whole thing. It's just everybody is on such a different level. Like, yeah, Gina Krishan's great in it, and Elizabeth Berkley's so over the top. But they're not even – it feels like they're in different movies. Are you saying they're in different places? Uh, I, I mean, I, 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 I wasn't. But, uh, <laughs> sure. Yeah. I'm going to throw these fries at you in this pop you just bought me. How dare you? Yeah. Yeah, th- through the Coke. I'm going to vomit. I'm going to vomit. I'm vomiting. <laughs> <laughs> it's fucking crazy. It's crazy. Like, what a terrible friend. And then, oh, you can make me a dress. Like, I don't want to make you shit. Fuck you. The worst being, like, at the right before that Gina Grishon scene in the hospital, just like, well, guess what? I took my revenge, Molly. I, I made sure that fucking piece of shit paid for it. Goodbye forever. While yeah. you're in the hospital recovering, adieu, Alvita Zane. <laughs> See ya. Uh, hope you got insurance because you lost your place. 
A hundred percent. Like, well, I'm out of here. I conned you. I conned everybody. And, uh, you know, ultimately, I'm okay. So <laughs> I'm out of so here. So I'm heading out of Vegas. Maybe mm-hmm. back to, going to L.A. <laughs> Do you know what room Gina Gashan's in? I gotta say goodbye to her too. Uh, <laughs> I'm gonna leave and a much wake. more passionately and erotically say goodbye to her. Yeah, you're right. I'm gonna leave a wake of people in the hospital on my way out of here. <laughs> so, yeah. Magically, the same guy picks her up. Right, of course. Yeah, sure. But I'm curious, Adam. What do you think? Like, sort of this over-the-top sensibility. This, this still feels like a Paul Verhoeven movie. Oh no, it's hundred percent like, for all. Right, right. But yeah, yeah, yeah. where where do you think like this doesn't work for you as much as like other Verhoeven movies? What's like the big script difference besides maybe a good script? But I mean, just in I, general. I, well, I think you kind of just hit it. Right. <laughs> it's, just, it's a shitty story. It's a bad script. It, it's just, I mean, everything's competently shot. There's a lot of crazy, wacky shit in this movie. There's a lot of disturbing stuff in this movie. It just none of it jet gels together for me. Like it's just a bad script, a hundred percent. And that's the magic of Verhoeven is like even like some of his worst movies. Like I would say even more less watchable movie to me compared to this one of his is like Hollow Man. Not a huge fan of that movie. A terrible film. Terrible, terrible right. film. Bad movie. But another movie that's at least like because of his directorial flourishes, plenty of fascinating, bizarre choices that make me incredibly enthralled by like every single possible turn that Verhoeven does. Just because like that dude is so maximalist. But at the same time, it's just like really trying to display so much about American culture that usually works with like a Robocop or Total Recall or these other things because like there's a much better script at hand. But even here, it's just like, oh, let me take Joel's script and uh, just put an exclamation point at the end of every single sentence. Whether it's a stage direction or a line of dialogue or even interior showgirls room. Dang. <laughs> like uh-huh. everything has an exclamation point on it now. Oh, 100%. Towel. Needs a towel. <laughs> it's uh... Which that scene always stuck with her too. Like this is just such stupid writing. This this movie is so ridiculous. Ah oh, man, that, that, I guess that's the thing about the movie. The di- as you said, the dialogue's terrible in this film. It's terrible. None of these words are spoken by real people. Like no real human being would say these things. No. But no, nah, whatever. Uh, it's just, I guess ultimately, you know what? Which which always does make bad movie. Uh, I don't give a flying fuck about anybody in this movie. Like, you really don't fucking care. I'd say uh, all the characters that you might feel sympathy for, obviously her friend and roommate is the one that might be the most, like, okay. Like, she feels like she might be a real person. A good person who tries to help people and gets horribly punished for it. Like, I feel the most for her, just like, oh, lady, that's awful. Well, that's, yeah, that's her for sure. It's just the rest. I don't care. I just do not care. I mean, I, I agree that, like, I don't care on, like, a genuine, like, emotional investment level, but they are so compelling in how alien they feel, which is, like, how bizarre, like, even, like, a Glenn Plummer, a character who could be completely lifted from the script, does not need to be there to any degree, but the moment he just is, like, on his fucking bartending job at that club, and it's just like, hey, man, I'm gonna leave my post to dance with this girl on the fucking dance floor, and then... All of that chaos that happens afterward, where it's just like, oh, hey, um, I'm going to get you basically thrown in jail and bail you out. And then I have, like, such an ownership over you, basically, of just like, hey, what about our relationship? What relationship, dude? You bailed her out after you cost all this shit to get her fucking put in jail. Yeah, and, and the dancing, by the way, or lack, I guess a lack of a better term, is not very well done in this movie. I mean, on stage or off, no. Yeah, it looks 
dumb. Like, they, like you're like, what are you people doing? It's so bizarre. Yeah, this movie's. I guess that's the the sort of quintessential word for this film. It's just bizarre. Yeah, even down to like a scene that like I could see. And once again, this is very a Star Wars born in terms of like its structure and sort of like rise to fame, fall from grace all that stuff, but just even now that we're like, I could see this working in sort of a Star is Born story about showgirls where it's like, oh, hey, this um, one girl's performing and one of the other uh, girls throws a bunch of pearls on the ground, causing the one guy to fall over and that lady just like hits the fucking ground and has to go to the hospital. Like on a basic level, like, yeah, that makes story sense for like a story like this. But in context of it, it is the most labored slow motion, like, oh no, and falls like on her ass and then has to be carted away by the fucking ambulance. Like it is the most like, okay, how can we take a very basic story beat, even make that feel as bizarre as possible? I get why people are like, oh, this is a cult classic and all that stuff. I just... It's just such a terrible fucking movie. Like, I don't know that I... Like, this is now... I mean, I've seen this movie a couple times. I'm telling you right now, I don't think I would... I'm ever going to watch this movie again. Like, I think I'm good. Nah, I would watch this again. We talk about this all the time in terms of bad movies. Of, like, there's the three categories. Genuinely awfully bad. Good bad and Trainwreck. This, I would argue, is the latter two combined constantly. Because, like, Showgirls is so incredibly entertaining to me on the level of just, like, I can't believe all these choices you're making, but also I'm compelled by how bizarre the choices are. And to certain degrees, I can get why, like, the, the sort of cult audience around this movie is, like, I get it for, like, uh, there's a lot of, like, drag performers who use a lot of the elements of this movie for the camp elements of it. Some have argued that it's actually an underrated, like, sort of satiric masterpiece. I don't know if I quite agree with that angle of it. But at the same time, I can see shades of that in terms of, I think, particularly the exploitation of women element. I think has, like, a, a real basis in sort of, like, a, unfortunately, in our reality about how women are constantly sort of, like, abused and used by various different people in show business. So where I could see why people have that kind of take on it, but I can see why this has also had such a massive audience because like it is an incredibly compelling film. Regardless of how you feel about Showgirls, I find it so incredibly compelling at every single bizarre turn it takes. Mostly turns I think are just fucking dumb and would not lead you to the correct destination. But at the same time, sure, let's go along that route. It's not about the destination, it's the fucking journey, dude. And this journey is bizarre and odd from, like, Verhoeven's direction, Joe Hester script, the every single performer. I find Showgirls so incredibly compelling. I will definitely see it more times in the future. I, I can't not, like, be so fascinated by the weird route this movie goes on. Um, in case you can tell, I think those are my final thoughts. Uh, if you have anything to add. <laughs> I was going to say. Uh, so what'd you think of it? Yeah, no, I don't really have much else. Like I said, I, I've seen it. I understand why people like it. It's just, it's never been for me. It'll never be for me. I think it's, you know, terrible. Yes, but that is uh, the end of our conversation being held between uh, the two of us over Zoom from different places. But yeah. we have a whole other segment to talk about, Adam, which is... The Double Redo. 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 So every week along we're talking about our two features. Adam and I also do our segment, The Double Redo, in which we recommend a film 
that is related to the topic, and vice versa also uh, steer you away from a certain feature. So each of us has a good and a bad, and uh, I'm going to start off here with uh, my two choices for this week's NC-17 double feature. I'll start with my good feature, which is uh, Lust Caution uh, from director Ong Lee. Uh, came out around 2007, sort of his follow-up to Brokeback Mountain. So the movie set during uh, the Second Sino-Japanese War, um, in which uh, a bunch of students from Shanghai, um, the, the main character of which is uh, Tang Wei playing um, this young uh, drama student, who um, is recruited to go from Shanghai to Hong Kong um, in order to sort of pose as um, this woman who is trying to um, romance a general who is uh, played by Tony Leong. And uh, basically it's a lot of her trying to kind of like um, romance him in order to lure him over to uh, the place where all these students are living so they can murder him. Um, and it's a fascinating sort of war drama that I watched recently just because I'm a fan of Ang Lee. I think Ang Lee is such a fascinating filmmaker. And uh, Lust Caution is one of those where I'd also heard about like all the controversy of it being NC-17 and stuff like that. And it's a pretty long movie. It's a, like two hours, 40 minutes long. And for the first hour and a half... I was constantly just like, why is this NC-17? It's just like an interesting kind of like character-based drama. I don't get why it would actually be like NC-17. Then around that point, uh, her and Tony Leong have some uh, incredibly graphic sex scenes that uh, I get like, oh, okay, this is why the MPA was completely against it. Uh, But at the same time, I don't think like those, it's like six minutes of sex scenes necessarily would earn that movie NC-17 to any degree. I think it would work perfectly as an R-rated movie. And it's a bummer that that NC-17 really negated from really having any kind of like awards buzz or big theatrical push, even though not a commercial movie to any degree. But it's a fascinating movie. Great performances from particularly Atong Wei and Tony Leong. They're so good together. But even a lot of the people like Joan Chen shows up from Twin Peaks, amongst others. And it's a really engaging sort of psychological thriller drama that um, is very bleak, very upsetting, but uh, goes into various directions I found constantly compelling, no matter what, and proves like Ang Lee, once again, such an amazing director. Um, And then my bad pick is a 1992 movie called Intent to Kill, which I was drawn to in doing research for the show because this is the only movie rated NC-17 for specifically graphic violence, like no sexuality to it in that regard, Um, which is interesting given it stars Tracy Lords who was more famous for her sort of uh, pornographic career, which there's a lot of unfortunate elements to that. You can look that up yourself. Uh, but uh, she plays like this cop who is like, you know, a loose renegade, very typical kind of like cop scenario with her, you know, always arguing with the chief of police played by the recently departed, but great Yafet Kodo, um, which all the best scenes in this movie are the two of them just like going back and forth, like you're off the force. You're such a rebel or whatever. And I think Lord's is like, kind of like, you know, fun as a presence. I don't think she's like the greatest actor necessarily, but I think she's like charming in a lot of the movies I've seen of her, even here, like playing a badass tough cop. I think it's interesting, but the biggest bizarre thing about this movie is despite being NC-17 for graphic violence, um, it's just like squibs. It's a lot of people getting shot with like blood and arterial spray, but not even like, we just mentioned Verhoeven. It's nowhere near as gory and violent as like a RoboCop or Total Recall with the squibs. It's just kind of like a very pat kind of like cop action movie. That's not terrible necessarily, but especially for the NC-17 of it all, it's just like, this is not nearly exploit like the, the sort of legend you can build around this movie of like oh my god it's vile disgusting violence got it like that nc-17 rating just like not deserved whatsoever this is not this is a movie that only kind of has any kind of vague appeal because of that and it's uh that's not it i saw lust caution like when it first first came out um 
to, to video, obviously. And uh, I remember really being sort of positive on it. I haven't seen it since then. I'd like to watch it again. Uh, I, I remember also being like, I don't get this. I don't get this. I don't. Oh, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I remember really liking that. Now, the other one I have not seen. Uh, Tracy Lord's mainstream work is something I haven't seen much of. Uh, I know there's not a ton of it, uh, unless you like looking at bit parts, but it's a complete and utter blank spot for me. I have no reason not to see it, but yeah, it's just one of those I, I've never sort of uh, gleamed onto. So maybe that's something to uh, not check out because it sounds pretty terrible. Um, <laughs> but uh, for mine, uh, I have the Lars von Trier unrated house that Jack built. Which was your alternate choice for this episode. Which was my alternate choice. Um, it's either a masterpiece or super pretentious, or both, as most Lars von Trier movies are. It's Matt Dillon's greatest performance ever. I mean, without a shadow of a doubt, he's absolutely fantastic in the movie. There are scenes of extreme brutality, extreme violence against women, children, men. I mean, it's it's pretty harrowing. But the last 30 minutes or so uh, is absolutely just... The imagery is just beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. I'm not going to give anything away because it's kind of like, what is happening? But it, it's fucking gorgeous. And the cinematography, the score, everything about it, it really almost makes up for a very dour viewing experience. The last 30 or so are just breathtaking. It's not a movie for everyone in no way. I didn't finish it and wasn't like, oh, I'm going to say, see if my wife wants to watch this when she gets, when she gets home. Uh, it's not a movie I would even openly recommend to a lot of people. Very select group of people, I think, might get some enjoyment out of it. But uh, I could see why it's so divided and really sort of leans more towards where people hate it than, than like it. But if anything, it's a very, very interesting film to watch. Uh, and then briefly for my bad, uh, I have the Human Centipede. Um, I could easily put any of these uh, up, uh, one, two, or three. Uh, but I'll just go with one because it's, you know, the first one, obviously. Uh, two is just a abysmal piece of shit. But one is just such a bad movie. Uh, Script-wise, it could be interesting, but it's just, it's so cheap looking and the acting is from everybody other than Dieter Laser, who's going like full 12 is really bad. Uh, the dialogue is terrible. It's just gross out movie for gross out sake. And I know that's the appeal of it to a lot of people, but it just never worked for me. Uh, Human Centipede is actually one of the first two or three movies I rented off of Netflix when they had the disc delivery service. And uh, I couldn't wait to watch it. I rented that and Dead Girl at the same time. Oh, that's a fun evening. It <laughs> <laughs> was a night. Um, but yeah, Human Centipede was just stupid. I Instantly, I was like, this movie is just stupid. Like, even the gross-out stuff, it's more in the dialogue than the actual anything else, you know, the or the noises that are made, you know, the, with the pooing and stuff like that. Like, it's just, it's a stupid fucking movie. The second one is irrehensible, just torture porn on another level and the third one is just ridiculously lame uh so i just yeah and you know i watched those you know you'd think i'd stop at the first one if i watched the other two because you know i used to contribute to a couple different websites and had to talk about horror movies and things like that so i i i was sort of tasked with those and uh yeah i i hate them and i hate myself uh even more for watching them yeah, um, I have not seen your good pick, uh, just because I've, I've seen only a couple Lars von Trier's just 
in terms of the ones I've watched, I've been very compelled by, but also it's like, I don't know, like, I have to be in a fucking mood to yeah. watch these movies, and not a mood I necessarily want to be in, <laughs> want to live in, necessarily. Um, but yeah, so House of the Jackbills has definitely been one, like, I, I heard all the, the various things about it, and I'm like, I mean, maybe one day, but um, it's it's not <laughs> very high on, like, the watch list, necessarily. But, I mean, I'm, I'm, the stuff you've said at least has compelled me a bit more. Then maybe maybe it's moved up like maybe a couple notches, but not especially. Yeah, high. no, I right. I wouldn't recommend running out to watch it. Like if you if you find yourself with three hours to kill and nothing to do, and you feel like being fucking disturbed, oh well, there you go. Well, and and I guess that's why I'm curious. We've been friends for so long. Do you think I would enjoy House of the Jack Bell? I think you would find it fascinating. I think you would find it ultimately fascinating. Enjoy it? No, because I didn't enjoy it <laughs> right, either. Right. <laughs> but unless I come back, you're just like Adam. Fun time. Like Lars von Trier. Like, oh man, a real crowd pleaser. I bought a I bought a Matt Dillon koozie because of it. Um, <laughs> no, it's uh. Look, if there's a beer koozie of Matt Dillon from that movie, I'd be, I I, I kind of no, want to buy it. I buy it. Yeah, I buy it. But yeah, I think you would find it fascinating. Okay. Um, and then Human Centipede, I recall like i watched it around the time it came out because that was a movie that also had such a mess like controversy but like oh my god like amongst sort of like the horror internet circles i Aww. traveled in online where it's just like oh my god this movie it's so fucked up like that premise was so brutal and i watched it and um i agree with you that Dieter laser is fascinating in it. Uh, r.i.p uh to yeah. a real one mr laser a very fascinating performance from him but um it's really the only thing keeping that movie adrift because like after the initial shock of like oh my god they're, they've been fucking sewn together ass to mouth. After that point, it's just like, oh, so we're just kind of like going along with this train and it's kind of like, it's it's kind of boring, honestly, which yeah. is so weird for this premise. It would have worked as like an ABCs of Death thing or... Right, like uh, an anthology segment, segment. yes. A yeah. thousand percent. Right, 100% agree with that. Because uh, at feature length, it just kind of gets like, I don't know, it's, it's trying to go for more of like a satiric kind of dark comedy take uh, but it's not really that funny or insightful or interesting. It's just kind of like, it's a one-joke movie, pretty much. Yeah, Like after After that initial shock, it's like, eh, all right. And I, uh, hence, why well, I did not bother with the sequels, which I've heard the various things that happened there. I'm like, okay, you know, even you though know as someone who watches a lot of fucking movies, uh, life's too short for that bullshit. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't blame you at all. Right. Um, but let's go ahead and repeat our titles for everybody out there. Um, my two titles were uh, My Good, Lust Caution, and My Bad, Intent to Kill. Uh, my Bad was The Human Centipede, and My Good was The Family-Friendly House That Jack Built. <laughs> for all the kids. All the kids. Thanksgiving's coming up. Throw it on. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Fun for everybody. Those are our features we'd recommend for our double redo. If you have recommendations, definitely send them to us to the various socials, which we're getting to the, the end of the show. We'll definitely mention those and also do our picking for next week at the end. Stay tuned for that. But we want to thank some people first, like Chris Oliver for intro and outro music used for our show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Uh, thanks to Christian Thor Lally for our artwork. Uh, find him on uh, various socials at Night of Water. That's night with a K, underscore of, underscore water. Uh, for all his great artwork. And thanks, of course, to our loyal Patreon supporters, patreon.com slash dedbpod, where for just $1 a month, you could do stuff like vote in polls for movies or topics we cover, like NC-17. You all pick that. Edgelords, as we call you. Thank you so much for that. And uh, some recent things that'll be up and about on the Patreon. Uh, one, uh, we would have just released our Waterworld audio commentary. That's our big bonus podcast for the month, uh, where we both watched Waterworld together and uh, you can sync along with us 
it was um, a very interesting discussion that, um, spoilers, has a lot of tangents to it that aren't necessarily related to Waterworld. Goes off the rails for a while. Yes, yes. Uh, but you can find that and watch Waterworld along with us. And then also there will be a poll up for another topic for uh, our patrons to vote on. Because, uh, you know, it's September right now, but spooky season's around the corner, Adam. And uh, we are going to ask everybody to vote in a poll for um, the one of the horror topics we do. Because every October, we love doing horror-themed months, horror subgenres, or filmmakers, all sorts of stuff. And... Everybody gets to vote between two that we've had in our back pocket for a while. And, you know, I'm kind of surprised we haven't done before. But it's a bit of a, you know, it's a win-win, as it were, between our two W choices you all get to vote in a poll between where we'll either devote an episode to films about werewolves or films about witches. Yeah! I'm good with either one. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I like both subgenres quite a bit. For sure, especially in horror, there's a lot of fun ones we could do with that. So it's up to you, Edgelord patrons, to vote which one of those we devote an entire episode to come next month. And that poll will be going up the day after this releases, so on Wednesday. You all get to vote between those two. Very curious where that'll go. And once again, for just the $1, you get to do all that stuff. Listen to that bonus content and vote in those polls. Just $1 a month. Yeah, not hard. Just uh, sign up for Patreon, everybody. And everybody who already is. I, I guess. I don't know. I don't know what the fuck to say to you people sometimes. Like, thanks or something. Uh, I mean, yeah. Thanks. Uh, different places, okay? <laughs> All you patrons are from different places. That's true. All over the world. Uh, but we uh, also want to do, you know, some general plug-in. Um, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook at DEDBpod. Uh, and also, we you can submit feedback to us or double redo choices, all sorts of stuff, over at doubleedgedoublebill at gmail.com. All spelled out, and um, Adam, why don't you go ahead and plug yourself? Because I've got, I've got a lot of things to plug. I'm such a busy boy, so please plug all yourself. Right. <laughs> uh, uh, oh, my name's Adam Thomas. I was born in July, uh, July I like 11th. Walks on actually, the beach. <laughs> uh, well, no, because I don't like sand. Gets everywhere. <laughs> but uh, no, you can find me on uh, Instagram at Atom or Adam. That's A T O M underscore O R underscore A D A M. And you can find me on Letterboxd at Schwanson. That's S C H W A N D T S O N. And uh, you can find me generally on uh, Twitter and Letterboxd at Not the Who's Tommy. And I also do some writing. At uh, marianitomas.wordpress.com occasionally, but also on film-cred.com. And I've got a few specific things to plug here. First, with FilmCred, um, if you become a patron over there for FilmCred, uh, you have access to uh, their monthly zine that they do that's themed around certain topics. And uh, some people contribute to that with articles. And I did that recently. With uh, They have CritterCred is uh, their recently released zine for the month of September. Um, and uh, it's all about, you know, like bugs and other sort of critters in cinema and i did a pretty detailed uh, little article about the fly series that's right not just the 1986 david cronenberg movie but also i talk about the original 58 movie it's two sequels uh, return and curse of the fly and then also the fly 2 uh starring eric stoltz as the son of jeff goldblum's character from the 86 movie um it's it's a very bizarre one but it's one of many uh, pieces of writing in that zine. It's worth it for... I'm a film cred patron as well. It's, it's worth it 
for that. There's a lot of great writing that's in there. Uh, but also, I did some podcast guest appearances over for Talk Film Society, which is the great podcast network we're a part of. Um, I was one, a guest on one of the recent episodes of Have a Nice Apocalypse, which I've been on before, the Richard Kelly podcast that a friend of the show, Marcelo Pico, hosts along with uh, Marcus, uh, where I was a guest along with uh, Tara, who does uh, Dream a Little Deeper, the Disney podcast for uh, Talk Film Society. And we talked a bit more about Southland Tales. Um, which uh, they they recently finished their big Southland Tales kind of like run through through like all the various different chapters of that movie, and I was a part of the, that sort of uh, last few episodes of that. They'll keep doing that podcast for other Richard Kelly projects like The Box and other things. But I was also a guest uh, once again on I assure you we're podcasting, which is uh, I've been on before. I talked about Zach and Mary make a porno with Mike, the host over there. But I returned for a segment in which I talked about Masters of the Universe Revelation. The Kevin Smith runs for He-Man reboot that was so controversial, quote-unquote, with fucking misogynist idiots. Along with that, uh, there's also on that particular episode, I'm part of the second half, but the first half has uh, a friend of the show, Ale Gonzalez, talking about Jane Silent Bob reboot with Mike. So uh, a lot of fun. You can hear me more if for some reason you want to on those various places. Yeah, nobody, nobody's, uh, <laughs> nobody's wanting to hear you more. <laughs> I know. I, like, when people get, like, uh, when I'm a guest on these certain things, I'm just like, are you sure? Like, you want your numbers to drop? I hear you in my sleep. <laughs> I mean, that's because of my dream machine, but we won't go into that. Drop. What we will go into is uh, we recommend you follow us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcasting platforms. If you're listening on Talk Film Society, you can listen to all the other great shows I'm not even guests on. There's a bunch of those on there. Um, and you can also uh, dig into our archives and our Podbean main feed for about 200 episodes before we even joined Talk Film Society. And nothing else, if you can't support us on the Patreon... It's cool. Money can be tight. We totally get it. Hard times all around. But the free way to help us out is to simply rate, review, or share the show on social medias and such to get us more visibility. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that's easy. You know, we, we, we don't ask much out of you fucking people. And uh, <laughs> we give you all this free shit. Uh, you know, just, just hook us up. Yes, please do. But... Before we finally end this episode, Adam, it's time we did our picking for next week, uh, where every week at the end of the episode, uh, Adam and I end up doing some form of picking for the following episode. Uh, so usually we each of us has either two good or two bad movies. We switch up on quality for that. And uh, we get, you know, a good and a bad feature based on each of us has those two movies and we assign them between one and ten for both of them. And the other person will say, like, you know what, I'm going to pick number six and the other person's like, okay, that's close to number seven, in which I had blank movie for either a good or a bad pick choice. Uh, so we'll be doing that again this time. But keep in mind, there's always this lingering thread here of the Godfather rule, where Adam and I each have a veto in our back pocket that we uh, gained in May and we have to use by next May. Um, and uh, we can, if we hear one of those choices, if we pick that number and we're like, oh, that's the movie that we got to, you know what? I'll take the cannoli, unless that gets us uh, the other choice as either the good or bad feature. But we can only do that once, and we get to use it or lose it by next May. And uh, our next topic is one that, you know, we've circled around, despite how many, like, fucking Italian jokes we've made. Um, we've never done this as a topic, for some reason, of mafia movies. Yeah! And they are some of my favorite subgenre of films. I absolutely love mafia films. Yeah, I mean, I'm predisposed. My blood says I must. Enjoy a good Mafia movie, and even a bad one, depending on who you ask. Uh, but uh, we are only going to be doing one half of the picking, Adam, because our patrons vote on a poll for the good choice of my picks 
uh, for this particular episode. And we ended up with, a, because of that poll, A Bronx Tale, which is a movie I've never seen, but I'm very curious to finally watch. Always been on the watch list. It's a really good one. De Niro and Palm and Jerry are great. I, I mean, are, do they have much experience in mob movies, though? No, especially not De Niro. Right. Yeah. yeah so it's, a, it's a bit of a different thing for them. I'm very curious. Yeah, to see yeah what he can we'll do see how that. he does. Yeah, we'll see how right. he does. I mean, we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. Right. Uh, so you can't use your veto on that. That's a big thing to say. Uh, any patron voted movies, you can't use that veto on. You're trying, I know, but you can't I use am. it. I am. Yep. Right. But um, I can use it potentially for your bad choice, Adam. So between your two movies, um, I'm going to go ahead and pick number three. Alrighty, at number two, I have a film made in 1991 with a real hot cast. Uh, it is Mobsters. What? Mobsters. I have. I don't think I've. It's from 1991, and Christian Slater is Lucky Luciano. Uh, Patrick Dempsey is Mayor Lansky. Richard Grieco is Bugsy Siegel, and Costas Mandalore is Frank Costello. Oh, yeah, dude. It's Anthony Quinn is, like, the main mafia boss. He's Don Giuseppe. Oh, yeah, real young Lara Flynn Boyle, Chris Penn. It's a, it's a, uh, it's a terrible film. <laughs> it's so bad. I'm so glad. Oh, and you've never even heard of it. Oh, I have never my... fucking heard of this movie. Um, well, you know, just on like, just flabbergasted alone. I can't use my veto on this. No, I'm not gonna. All right. <laughs> let's, yeah. let's, let's fucking see how mobster is, but what, what was your alternate choice? <laughs> <laughs> Number nine. I had the really bad, but should have been good. Gangster squad. Oh Yeah. I've seen that one. Uh, spoilers. Not much to say. Just it's fucking bad. It's I bad. Would have... All right. Um, let's see if maybe mobsters elicits more discussion uh, alongside a Bronx Tale. All right. Yeah. I mean, Robert Zadar is in it, so how can it not? Oh, wh- why'd you leave with that? <laughs> it's true. It should have. Yeah. <laughs> fuck yeah. No. All right. Robert Zadar alone. No. Hot, yeah. Very highly endorsed in this. Okay. So, all right. Uh, we'll talk about those two movies next time. But until then, everybody. Um, we hope that uh, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, you're hopefully enjoying like a nice plate of chicken in your different places. Yeah, I don't know. Fuck you, Nomi Malone.